With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. You're listening to The Sunday Debate on Intelligence Squared. This week, we're continuing our COP26 series with the debate on whether the conference has had any positive effect. Here's Science presenter and host Helen Chersky with more. Hello and welcome to this event. It's a pleasure. For, we're all here together this evening to discuss a really important question and one that a lot of people are asking, which is COP26. Was it a success or a failure? So here's how it's going to work. We've got four fabulous contributors who were all at COP26, who've all got their different opinions on what happened. And we will be tapping into what they think uh, to explore this question. So we are going to get straight into it with our first speaker. And she will be very familiar to many of you, I'm sure. It is Carol. Caroline Lucas, the Member of Parliament for Brighton Pavilion since 2010. She served as the Chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Groups on Climate Change and Limit to Growth, as well as the Co-Chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Groups on Fuel Poverty and Energy Efficiency. So Caroline, on the topic of COP26, success or failure for the world, what do you think? Thanks so much, Helen. And one of my favourite TV programmes is West Wing. And there's a great bit where the chief of staff, Leo McGarry, says to President Bartlett just before a big interview, he always he said, always challenge the premise of the question. And so when we're posed this question, COP, successful failure, I guess my first question would be successful failure for whom? And frankly, if I were the climate envoy of the Marshall Islands, for example, I'm pretty sure I'd see it as a failure. And anyone who heard the testimonies from some of the most climate vulnerable countries in the final session of the COP will be in no doubt about just how betrayed they felt about the failure to deliver the annual $100 billion that was first promised nine years ago, for example, or about the refusal to set up a loss and damage financial facility. 
And the second way of perhaps challenging the, the question would be to say whether we're judging success within the context of what's currently deemed to be politically possible or whether we're judging it by what's scientifically necessary and internationally just. On the first measure of what's deemed politically possible, yes, there were some small incremental steps in the right direction. But on the second, on the transformative change that is so urgently needed right now, then I would argue that the results of COP were a million miles away from what's required. So just in a tiny bit more detail in the time that I have in terms of the failures, well, I've touched on the first one already, but the climate pledge not being met, the money for adaptation not being sufficient, the replacement of the loss and damage financial facility instead with a loss and damage dialogue, I think all of those were incredibly disappointing. And frankly, countries on the front line of the climate emergency don't need any more dialogue. They need financial support now. And in that regard, I just wanted to emphasize a really powerful contribution from the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley. She pointed out that climate finance to small island states declined by 25% in 2019, but that there is a sword that can cut down what she called this Gordian knot of finance. And she points to the fact that $25 trillion of quantitative easing was created globally in the last 13 years, $9 trillion of that in just the last 18 months to deal with COVID. And she posits the idea of an annual increase in SDRs of special drawing rights of 500 billion a year for 20 years, put that in trust to finance the transition. And then you could be really talking about serious amounts of money. And she points out that 500 billion sounds big, but it's just 2% of the 25 trillion of quantitative easing that has been produced so far. On keeping the 1.5 alive, this was the COP, of course, that was meant to receive those nationally determined contributions, those country pledges that would together lead to no more than 1.5 degrees of heating. Instead, as we know, even if all the current pledges were delivered on, and it's a big if, we're still headed for at least 2.4 degrees of heating. So in that respect also, it would be hard to say that this meeting had been a, a success. In terms of perhaps some of those incremental steps that we could say were in the right direction, well, I think it's interesting that the language used at the COP really did seem to recognise that we are talking about a crisis, an emergency. It felt like we had moved forward in terms of, of the discussion about whether or not human beings are causing climate change. That wasn't in question. The question was how fast we were going to move. I think the side agreement on deforestation in particular might deliver some urgently needed progress, although there are big questions about accountability. I think it's important that nature was recognised in the final text for its critical complementary role in achieving 1.5. And I think it's really important that that, that nature side, the other side of the climate uh, question, if you like, is properly integrated. And we saw the beginnings of that at this COP. And finally, 1.5 um, is, is just about alive, I suppose. It's on life support. But what really matters is the next 12 months. I think the next 12 months will be critical. The COP in Egypt has to be a development COP. It has to have climate justice at the top of its agenda. And it has to deliver because if it doesn't, this gaping trust gap, which has got only deeper, I think, through the Glasgow meeting. I think if that trust gap gets any bigger, then the chances of being able to stay below 1.5 degrees really will be compromised. 
Thank you very much. Let's get straight on with the next uh, contributor then, and, and that is Bim Afalami, who the Conservative MP for Hitchin and Harpenden since 2017, uh, the chair of the All Parliamentary Group on Renewable and Sustainable Energy, vice chair of the Parliamentary Group for International Conservation, and in 2020, authored a report called Unlocking Britain, looking at ways in which Britain's economy can recover after the COVID-19 pandemic. Bim, what's your view on the question at hand? Well, thank you for that. And uh, to go on from from Caroline quoting President Bartlett, so if if we're thinking of centre-left leaders from the early 2000s, I think of the New Labour Manifesto. I think it was sort of 2001 where it said, a lot done, a lot more to do. And that for me is, is, is where we are with this COP. A lot done, a lot more to do. There've been good stuff. Caroline's already mentioned some of it. The pledges on deforestation, methane, the phasing down of coal, not where Alok Sharma and a lot of countries wanted to end up, but definitely for the first time, an acknowledgement from all countries, particularly India and China, but others as well, that coal is something that we are going to see the back of. And that hasn't happened before, though, you know, as as the COP president Alok Sharma said, you know, he wanted, you know, we wanted to go further. So there has been a lot done. In terms of sort of things we need to do in order to move forward, because I think everybody accepts that we're not where we need to be yet. Something that hasn't got enough attention, in addition to the climate finance points that Caroline very well made, and I agree with much of what she said, the necessity of developed countries and those with a lot of assets and capital to use those financial assets to help finance adaptation and mitigation in the developing world. I think that is absolutely key. And it sort of astonishes me that we haven't done a bit better in that regard, because unless, and it doesn't matter all the political pledges and all the good intentions, unless there's hard cash for developing countries that cannot afford to move to the next level up in terms of renewable or sustainable energy, then we aren't going to make enough progress. But something that hasn't got enough attention is the explicit acknowledgement of a need for a global sort of UN-backed carbon market. And the reason why I think this is really important is in my discussions over the last few months, indeed the last couple of years, relating to the environment, the economic aspects of this are absolutely crucial. If we can make it economically viable in across the world for industry and individuals and communities to invest in the right sorts of energy, to do the right things in a climate sustainable way, that is going to be the fastest, most deliverable way of us doing this. Because I'll just finish with this. You know, my, father's, uh, my father's Nigerian, uh, much of my family comes from Nigeria. When I speak to relatives or friends who are in parts of the world like that, they will often say, yes, we want to do our bit by the environment, but we aren't going to impoverish ourselves as we try and develop as countries in order to do so. We need to make it economically viable for every single country in the world to develop their economies and improve their standard of living and do it in a clean way. And I think this global carbon market is very important. I think the climate finance aspects are important and we need to work harder on them. But for me, going ahead to COP27 and, and further on, yes, we need to hold countries to their targets and the things they've said, but we also need to work on the economic aspects. Because if we can get that right, then I think we can make real progress in the years to come.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Our next speaker is Clover Hogan, a climate activist and the founding executive director of Force of Nature, a youth nonprofit mobilizing for climate action. She's worked alongside the world's leading authorities on sustainability, consulted within the boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies and supported students in over 50 countries to realize their power as change makers. So Clover, do let us know what you think. Thank you for having me. So I attended my first COP, COP21, when I was 16 years old. And I remember going in with this kind of starry-eyed optimism that, you know, finally world leaders would come together to act with the urgency that this emergency requires. And I attended something called the Sustainable Innovation Forum, which was sponsored by the likes of Coca-Cola, BMW, Shell, iconic polluters and iconic contributors to the climate crisis. And I remember feeling as if it was like going to a conference on lung cancer sponsored by Philip Morris, the cigarette company. I left feeling incredibly disillusioned. And it was the first time that I really started to wake up to the fact that the scale of transformative action that is required is not necessarily going to come from those institutions that we are raised to trust, the leaders that we are told to place our faith in as young people. And it was the first time I realized that the climate crisis is not going to be solved with the same thinking and the same people who caused it. 
in the years since, I've learned that we've had the technology, resources, ingenuity to solve the climate crisis for decades. In fact, decades before I was even born. And critically, what we've lacked is the will, the mass kind of mobilization. Going to COP26, it wasn't that different from what I experienced the first time. I'm an Aussie originally, and I, I went over to the Australian Pavilion because each country is uh, represented. And it was sponsored by Santos, you know, one of the biggest oil and gas companies in Australia. So it's difficult to take the conversation and the negotiations seriously when we have such a degree of vested interest ultimately controlling the dialogue. You know, you look at the average age as well of the people within this kind of cordoned off blue zone, right? The corridors of power, generally 60 and above. And you look at the tens of thousands of people who are out protesting in the street and largely they're under the age of 20, you know, so there's this intergenerational breakdown as well. We saw more young voices represented at COP26 in spite of the kind of systemic um, inequity and, and systemic barriers to getting frontline voices and, and youth voices into those spaces. Um, but while we're being handed the microphone, we're not actually being invited to the decision-making table. So when it comes to contributing to policy, when it comes to actually having a say over the decisions that are ultimately going to govern our future, we're being excluded from the room. And to Caroline's point, this is absolutely true of the people who have contributed the least to the climate and ecological crisis and are already paying its worst impacts. So I agree that there is no kind of binary that COP can fit into. It's, it's not a matter of success or failure. But I think largely the system that we're trying to use to solve the climate crisis is really, really inadequate. I mean, even the fact that super important language, like whether we're phasing out coal or phasing down coal, um, the fact that that can be swayed and changed at the last possible moment because of a couple of, you know, member states. Um, ultimately, I don't think we're going to reach transformative action at the pace and scale required if we're waiting for group consensus for everyone to be happy of the decisions that are being made. So I think we need to take a radically different approach and in rethinking that engine that is going to deliver change at the pace and scale required, we need to think critically about who has historically been excluded from those decision-making spaces and ensure that they are at the table. Thank you very much. And last but not least, our final speaker is Adair Turner, the chair of the Energy Transitions Commission and formerly chair of the UK Financial Services Authority. He was the first chair of the UK Climate Change Committee and has been a leading voice on how businesses can do more to combat climate change. Adair, please tell us what you think of the motion under discussion. Okay, so success or failure? Well, obviously not successful enough to say that we're on a clear path to limit global warming to acceptable levels, but I think nevertheless a useful step forward on which we need to build. Going into COP26, 
it was clear that the plans which countries had submitted, the NDCs, National Determined Contributions that are called, were far short of what is required to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. And just to clarify for everybody, we knew that before COP26. There were never going to be new NDCs revealed at COP26. That was a, a fact that we knew going in. Those NDCs in aggregate will only reduce 2030 emissions about 3.5 gigatons of CO2 below the previous path in the previous uh, sort of generation of the NDCs. And we need instead to cut emissions by about 20 gigatons below where we might be in 2030, from sort of 40 gigatons to 20 gigatons order of magnitude. So we knew going into COP that we had a challenge. On the other hand, over the last year or two, it has become clear that the technologies through which we can fix this problem, solar and wind power, batteries, green hydrogen, are actually progressing faster and the costs are reducing far faster than we dared hope. Uh, and this has transformed in the last 10 years. When I was the first chair of the UK Climate Change Committee in 2008, I had no idea that the cost of solar PV was going to come down by 90% uh, in just a decade. And that is reflected in the fact that an increasing number of companies and sectors are now seriously committed. And I do think it's not just greenwash, it's serious committed to getting to net zero emissions by 2050 and indeed to big reductions in the 2020s. So I think the challenges we went into COP26, and this was clearly recognized by the COP presidency, was twofold. One was separate from the negotiation process to organize coalitions of the willing combinations of countries and companies, but without trying to get all 196 countries signed up, combinations of countries and companies and sectors which would make commitments to actions going beyond NDCs, those commitments then creating momentum for further technological progress, further cost reduction, and more rapid emissions reductions. That was objective one. And objective two was then to come out of COP26 with a negotiated all-country agreement that countries would tighten their NDCs further over the next few years to reflect this momentum and potential, what is called in the COP process, the ratchet effect. So against those two objectives, coalitions of the willing going beyond NDCs and commitments to tighten NDCs, how did we do? Well, there were multiple very valuable commitments by coalitions of the willing. On ending deforestation, what was called the Leader's Declaration on Forests and Land Use, was, I think, a bit of a surprise. It was somewhat better than many of us had dared hope. Frankly, the devil is in the implementation, but if you read what was said on the tin and what was signed up to by a far larger number of companies than before, that was a big step forward. On exiting from existing coal generation, what was called the Global Coal to Clean Power uh, Transition Statement, frankly, it was disappointing because if you have a statement on exiting existing coal, which isn't signed by China, by India, or even by the USA, we have a bit of a problem. On road transport electrification, I think there is really considerable progress, and I'm actually very confident that in road transport, we are going to see much faster emissions reductions than are currently reflected in country NDCs. Add them all up, and 
if all of these are delivered, and that's a big if, I think they could reduce 2030 emissions by about six gigatons on top of the 3.5 gigatons of MDCs. So we reckon maybe 9.5 gigatons of 20 to 22 gigatons of CO2 emissions, and that's a big step forward. As for the negotiated agreement, what's called the Glasgow Climate Agreement, I think that was the bit which was unanimously agreed. I think in some ways it was quite good. If you look at clauses 22 to 26 and clauses 27 to 30, I think the agreement that we have to aim for emissions reductions of 50% in the 2020s and the agreement to come back by the end of 2022 with a tightening of the NDCs was frankly more than we expected and quite surprising that that survived the negotiating process, but obviously a disappointment that in the last 24 hours, the commitment on phasing out coal was watered down to phase down. So overall, was it successful failure? I think it was a step forward. I think coming out of it, if you think all those commitments are delivered, we're probably on a path to two degrees centigrade, though I agree with Caroline, if all you think will be delivered was the NDCs we knew about in before, that's only 2.4. So it is a step forward and one on which we have to build, both in terms of implementing what was agreed, but also tightening it still further over the next few years. Thank you. Now, we're going to get into some of the, the details of some of these issues, but I do have one question um, that I'd like to explore before we get started, which is that you've all set out, you know, obviously different countries have different opinions. However, it seems that you've all described a situation where everyone agrees there are these targets. Everyone agrees we need to do more. Everyone agrees what is done was not enough. So in that room, you were all there um, or, or in there or nearby. Um why is it then that the world cannot agree? And I'd just like, you know, briefly, perhaps uh, to get from, from some of you, why it is that there can be this general agreement on what needs to happen, and yet somehow it's not possible to agree on what that is? Bim? The answer to that is quite simple. It is about the political viability in different countries of moving faster. So in this country, our political debate on this is pretty advanced. And I think there's broad political consensus about the need to, to move faster. I think even if you look at a country like Australia or Canada, they're not in the same place as we are, and let alone the United States, China, India, et cetera. So that is the ultimate limiting factor. And that's the case as much for democratic countries and for non-democratic countries. Has anyone else got anything to add to that? Why is, why is this so difficult? Caroline? I think it's so difficult because there isn't a sufficient recognition of the historic responsibility of the richer countries. I mean, I mean, this does go to the heart of politics and history and climate justice. And, you know, we are expecting poorer countries to really make some very big changes and not giving them the finance that they need in order to be able to make those changes. Um, you know, we have benefited from from the industrial revolution and all of the uh, exploitation frankly and extraction that went along with that from some of those countries and now we've discovered the fact that the climate is heating and we recognize we need to do something about it but we have already had much of our development we've had much of the benefit from from the status quo and other countries are rightly saying hang on a minute where do we get our fuel from in order to develop in the way we want to? I think it was really interesting that in the final text, 
coal is the only fossil fuel that was mentioned. How very convenient, because richer countries are less dependent on coal than poorer ones. Oil and gas, of course, was nowhere in the declaration. You know, the, the, the inequalities baked into that climate pact and into the whole process, frankly, I think means that there is a massive loss of trust. And unless the finance is forthcoming, as I mentioned earlier, unless the next COP is a development COP, then I think we're looking at a really grim outlook. Well, let's pick up on that point of there's been a lot of criticism, especially of India and China, with respect to the wording on coal, noting, as you said, that oil and gas were not mentioned at all. But it's very easy. It's one of the things that I notice a lot in this process is it's always somebody else's fault, right? It's always, whatever happens, it's always somebody else's fault. And so how how far is it how far is it appropriate to be critical of India and China on this? Adair, do you have a, a comment on this? Well, look, I, I just wanted to pick up on why, you know, what went wrong. Well, there needs to be more money promised from the rich developed world to help the developing world with two challenges in particular. One is ending deforestation and the other is existing coal, existing coal. And the reason why we need those are those things which are not now economic in themselves, right? There are other things which, because of technological progress, it is now economically advantaged to say no to new coal or to electrify road transport. But we have these things which will only occur with flows of finance. But if you then look at China and India, I think the crucial thing is to realize that they're in a completely different position. I mean, China is now emitting more per capita than the European Union. And I think during the 2020s will overtake the US. And China is also not a poor country. It is a middle income country and it will be a high income country. Now, they will take time to turn their ship around. Uh, they will, they are, as it were, halfway between Caroline's no real responsibility for this challenge and those who, you know, are responsible for this challenge. I think they are committed to the reductions which are needed, but they are also trying to develop their economy. I think there was a major step forward in the US-China declaration, which came out on the Wednesday of the second week, but we need to encourage them to go further. India is in a different position. India still has per capita emissions, which are you know a small fraction of ours, and we don't need them to achieve you know, such rapid reductions as China does. So, so, you know, it is a different position. Um, I was disappointed that China was not willing to go further on phasing out coal, but I think that is something that we should return to next year, because I think what we will find from China is that they will probably over-deliver what they have promised. The Chinese at Glasgow were saying, everybody else is talking about an ambition gap. I, we're not promising enough. We, the Chinese, said we think the biggest problem is an implementation gap. There are people who are promising things and won't deliver, whereas I think it is likely that the Chinese uh, will deliver. Having well, said let's that, pick up. Let's, let's let Bim, sorry to interrupt. Let's let Bim come in on that point, because you mentioned developing countries wanting to saying, well, you know, it's all very nice for you, but we're not going to hold ourselves back. So on, on this question of India and China, particularly when perhaps we are in the West buying a lot of stuff from China, you know, it's not that their carbon emissions are only their carbon emissions. How do you see, should we be critical of them or should we be, you know, is this that we're not giving them enough help? I think it's that we need to just be more understanding of the position, both in terms of finance, uh, but also in terms of 
the fact that they are not at the same stage economically as we are. The way but do I we would, have time to wait? Well, I mean, that's the, the issue. I would, I'm saying it? the way I would deal with this and look at it is twofold. First of all, it's to continue with our ambitious plans so that we improve the technologies so that we can effectively get those technologies implemented and put in their countries. But secondly, we need to look at trade and we need to accept that if we are buying things that are not made in an environmentally sustainable way, that is contributing just as much to it as uh, we're contributing as much as they are. So I think that the nature of how trade works and the trade rules and an embedded carbon within trade needs to be built into this whole process. I know it's slightly separate from COP, but it is pretty important if you're thinking about the economic and the flows of goods around the world. Well, let's come to the acceptability in various countries. And and Clover, I'd like to bring this to you because obviously you you are in, in the room here. I guess you're the voice, you're you're the youngest one here, I think. And there's this, you know, we, we often hear politicians, a sort of politician's excuse, if you like, which is sort of, oh well I would like to but my constituents, my electorate won't be happy if I am as radical as you want. Do you think that people can get away with that? Is that what you saw at COP that that, that continues to be an excuse? Well, I suppose I'd go back to the original question, which has in it this kind of implicit assumption that, yes, everyone agrees that climate action should happen. I think most people can get on board with that idea so long as it causes no inconvenience to them. You know, there's this idea that, yes, absolutely, we should be, you know, transforming and, you know, changing the economic system, et cetera, so long as that it doesn't actually cost us any money or cost us any votes and et cetera. I mean, we see that with the proliferation of net zero commitments that are being made by the world's biggest companies. These are companies that are, you know, out Outwardly saying to the world, yes, we're part of this green energy transition. We want to be a sustainable leader, um, investing lots and lots of money and resource into being seen to do the right thing. And then behind closed doors, they're actively funding lobbyists to dismantle climate policy and climate bills that would actually facilitate a just transition because within those bills are recommendations and, and statements that they should be taxed <laughs> for that transition. So I think what we're hearing from a lot of leaders. We, we had so many political leaders giving really lovely, eloquent, inspiring speeches, but those commitments not actually being followed through. And I think, again, it has to go back to let's not assign individual blame, but let's look at the actual systems that make it incredibly difficult to do the right thing. And I think if we look at politics, it's a fundamentally short term kind of system where you're investing your energy and resource into being elected and then you're just trying to maintain your position and then you're not going to try and you know take the kind of risk that could cost you re-election. And I think, again, it's, it's really about centering, to Caroline's point, you know, a just climate transition. And I think we've allowed this to be talked about as a kind of technological crisis without going to the heart of the fact that this is a humanitarian crisis. You know, the people who have contributed the least are being disproportionately impacted. But ultimately, when we're talking about, you know, the energy transition that has to be rooted in, okay, well, what does the economic opportunity look like for people who have been left behind by their societies? And I think just as a final point to that, you know, there was a lot of this kind of 
techno utopian talk at COP. Even US climate envoy John Kerry at one point has said that, you know, uh, over half of the climate technologies that we'll need to transition to net zero in the US um, have not yet been invented. And, you know, even Elon Musk earlier this year tweeting that he's going to donate 100 million US dollars to the best carbon capture technology as if trees don't exist, right? So I think we have, you know, these incredible nature-based solutions that can be delivered via the vehicle of, you know, creating fair and equitable communities. But it's a lot more convenient to say, actually, the solutions don't yet exist and won't, you know, for another 10, 20 years. Now, I'd like to pick up on that issue of trees, actually, in the sense of one of the things you nodded to there, Clover, was that trees are not really a business proposition in the sense that that's not the sort of, you know, although there's a lot of expertise and, you know, all kinds of things needed to plant trees, fundamentally, it's not a new technology that needs to be invented. And so perhaps there's less interest in it. And so I'm interested in the role of business because this seems to be one of the big, you know, there's almost a, there's very much a two pronged approach here, but people talk far more about the business solutions than the non-business solutions. So I'd like to come to Caroline first on the role of business, and then we'll perhaps let some of the, the business advocates defend their corner. Caroline. Well, actually, I'm going to say that an awful lot of business are way ahead of governments when it comes to both the, the recognition of the kind of change they need to make and, and the speed with which they need to do it. I mean, I come across businesses who are crying out for government to give them a level playing field, to give them clear financial signals so that they know that it's safe to invest. So I, I think that business can be a, a partner in this. I mean, clearly there are some bad businesses too, and some businesses that are heavily invested in the status quo. And as Clover said, who are actually financing think tanks that will try to, uh, to to muddy the waters over the reality of, of, of the climate emergency and so on. But I think it would be very dangerous to tar all business with the same brush. And I think there are some very exciting initiatives out there, the B Corps initiative and, and, and so forth, that are really doing some, some positive things. If I could just say one quick thing about tree planting, though, which is that hopefully in the debate at some point, we can get to the question about what some of these businesses are saying in terms of their net zero um, aspirations, because it really worries me that that little word net is doing one hell of a lot of heavy lifting. And for example, just one company, Shell, it has a net zero uh, target, I think, of 2050. If you look at the amount of land it thinks it's going to have to use just to meet its objectives by 2030, it would require the amount of land that is three times the size of the Netherlands in order to plant trees. Now, that is just simply not possible. And if we're not very careful, A, we're going to have a lot of double counting of all of this bit of land that are being earmarked by different companies for their net zero offsetting. And also, where is that land going to be? Well, again, if we're not careful, it's going to be in countries of the global south who may well quite like to use that land for their own for their own needs. Thank you very much, not least for food growing and so on. So I think there's an awful lot packed up into some of those net zero pledges from business. Have we got a quick comment from anyone else on business? No? Okay. In which case, just um, one more before we go to audience questions then, which is that one of the things is that 
Oh, go on. Sorry, I missed something. Yes, sorry, go on. Absolutely reinforce Caroline's point. Look, there are some bad businesses out there arguing about regulation and carbon pricing, but there are others absolutely calling for it. So I spoke at Glasgow at the International Chamber of Shipping, where there is an agreement to get to net zero. And the obvious way forward, or one obvious way forward, is for the International Maritime Organization, which is a treaty-based organization with uh, rulemaking power, to impose a global carbon tax. And one of the heads of one of the major shipping companies in the world, with several politicians in the audience, said, you politicians think we dislike regulation. We love regulation because we want a level playing field. And I think Caroline is right that in some crucial areas, the politicians are behind business in this respect. Now, uh, Clover is absolutely right. At the other extreme, there are businesses lobbying against it in the background, etc. But at least some businesses are absolutely calling for regulation and carbon pricing. And politicians have got to have a bit more guts in responding to those calls. So we've got a question from an anonymous attendee here, which is that they say their big takeaway from COP26 was that governments are the big players. So and the, the hierarchy sort of goes government and then business and then maybe individuals somewhere at the bottom. So their question is, Basically, what does an individual do? What's the most important thing an individual can do? Because I think you know, the implication is a lot of individuals at the moment are watching all these big beasts moving around the, the playing field and, and feeling very helpless. I'm happy to kick Go off on, with that one. <laughs> the first thing I would reiterate is that we recognize that the existing infrastructure and institutions that we've depended on to act with the scale and urgency required have failed to. And so more than ever before, we need great collectives of people taking back power and agency upon themselves to ultimately create the world by our own design and, and to not you know, implicitly trust that those who a lot of the time feel beholden to the status quo, like the business leaders and policymakers we've worked with, um, you know, to actually be constructively disruptive. And so I think there are lots of different avenues through which we can do that. But, you know, the climate crisis is ultimately a symptom of a number of fundamentally broken systems from our food system to our economy to the clothes that I'm wearing to how I travel around London. And what that means is that there is no shortage of problems, but there is a shortage of people kind of putting up their hands and saying, okay, well, here's what I can do to contribute to the problem and uh, to contribute to the solution rather. And I think just as a final point to that, it's really easy to look at the crisis and feel completely overwhelmed and shut down by it. I think it doesn't help that a lot of the journalists and reporting on the climate crisis is largely kind of apocalyptic and doomsday. And we see, you know, ensuing rise of eco-anxiety, people who are kind of falling into despair in response to this crisis. Um, But more than ever before, we need people saying, okay, well, here's the piece of the puzzle that I can take on. Here are the skills and and the talents that I can show up with. And that might mean putting political pressure on. That might be using business as a force for good. That can simply start with having difficult, you know, climate conversations at the dinner table with people who might not be on the same side or, or might not be so convinced. Thank you. Any other comments on what individuals can do? Yeah, Bim. Yeah, I mean, I get asked this a lot as a member of parliament, uh, whether I'm speaking my constituency or, or around the country. And I was asked this last week. And the answer I gave was that, yes, as Clover said, there's public pressure, there's, there's the normal political mechanisms. But in addition, I think that citizens need to be demanding transparency in a carbon sense, 
both from governments and their political representatives, but also from businesses. You know, this isn't a hierarchy. I don't believe that. Actually, what we have is governments, uh, individuals, businesses, community groups, and it's a network. It's not a hierarchy because all of these uh, bodies are all linked umbilically to each other. So transparency on the clothes that you buy and how that's been produced, transparency on the, the food you buy and how, how, how far away it's been, it's been uh, reared or whatever it is, those things can have such a big impact. And the last point I make is, you know, last night I was at dinner with a, a big PLC in this country, Mighty, talking about buildings and need to reduce emissions from buildings. And they were saying, yes, the CEO is pushing ahead. He's going further, I think, than a lot of people expect them to go. But he said it's often his staff that are telling him, this is what we want to do. We're proud of working for a business that, that takes this sort of seriously. Do you see what I mean? So really, that's how I should, that's, I don't think people should see themselves as being at the bottom of a hierarchy. That is not how it is. We're all connected and that's how people should try and affect change. So the message here, oh, go on, Caroline, yes. And I was just going to, to add, a, yeah, I, I agree that it's not a, a hierarchy or at least it shouldn't be. I just do worry a little bit. Um, I mean, of course, I'm in favour of transparency, but I do worry a little bit that sometimes that transparency argument can be used as one that puts all of the responsibility back onto people as consumers. So we have to spend our time with our microphone, mi microscopes in, in supermarkets trying to work out what the ingredients are in any particular product. And frankly, there are just some things that should be in those products. Let's just not put palm oil in some of those products so we don't have to worry if we're killing gorillas when we buy some butter or something. You know, so there is a really strong role for an enabling policy framework that makes it much easier for people then to make the right choice. Right now, partly there are things on the market that just simply shouldn't be. Partly all of the price signals are wrong. And so, you know, people will, will take flights because it's cheaper than taking the train, even within the UK, which is just madness. So, so yes, people, people are important actors, but in order to be able to really make the choices that individuals make matter, then that has to be mediated by a, a more enabling policy framework, which comes back to policymakers to put that in place. Thank you. Well, let's move on to the next question. Oh, go on. Yes, go on. Look, I think one should change one's individual behavior. And I certainly think anybody who, like me or other people here, you know, uh, talks about these issues should change their behavior in what they eat, how they travel, et cetera, et cetera. And I think individuals have a role to play that. But the most important thing, if you live in a democracy, is to vote. And here's a blunt fact. American youth are much pro more pro a, a climate change than older people, but they vote much less. And if they had voted in the same proportion as older people in 2016, we'd have never had Donald Trump. We'd never had America pulling out of the Paris Agreement. And we would be significantly more advanced now. I have a point to put to, put to you in that case, which is that, you know, at this COP, it was agreed that there would be revisiting every year, which, you know, because they were like every five years is not often enough, which I think is very obvious to a lot of people. But we only get to vote every five years. So what do voters do if they have to wait cycles and cycles of the COP? Always, you you know, you, we can't have votes every year, but, you know, during that period, you know, and I'm sure Bim would say this, you know, 
letters to MPs make a difference. Pressure makes a difference. Joining pressure groups that, you know, put pressure on people makes a difference. It's very different in China. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about, engagement of youth and civil society is irrelevant to the China debate. We have to have another way of influencing their point of view. But in our democracies, strong engagement in the democratic process is one of the most important things that you can do. We, oh, we got lots more questions from the audience. And this one, now, I don't know the details about this one, but I, I think it, it's the sort of thing people hear about and don't know about. And it's an, another anonymous question. And it is, should fossil fuel companies be allowed to sponsor COP27? Now, I don't know the extent of sponsorship. I don't know if any of you do or any of you have opinions on who should be allowed to sponsor components of the COP uh, events. Anyone know about sponsorship? Caroline, looks like you do. Just no, just just absolutely no. I mean, you know, which is not to say that every single fossil fuel company is evil, although perhaps they are in a way. But but I just think the perception of it, apart from anything else, you know, maybe they're not using it as, as a way of greenwashing, but they probably are. Maybe they're not using it to get better access to the politicians, but they probably are. But the point is the perception is 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 that they will be. So it feels to me a very odd thing to do. You wouldn't have tobacco companies sponsoring a conference on 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 lung cancer. And I and I, I think the fossil fuel companies absolutely need to be spending their time changing their model, not sponsoring these kinds of meetings. I'm going to take a slight look. I don't. I, I think I agree that they probably shouldn't, you know, sponsor it. But I do think we need to be clear about the fossil fuel companies. It is a bit different from tobacco. It would have been better if we'd never had tobacco at all. We would never have got to our current standards of living across the world without fossil fuels. But we've now got to move beyond fossil fuels, and there is a big difference in the fossil fuel companies across the world between ones which are taking a lot of their cash flow and investing it in new technologies and those which, particularly in the US, are just fighting back and trying to defend their fossil fuel business forever. And I do think we need that differentiation uh, in our point of view on them. And we need to reward and encourage the ones which are making the change quickly because that cash flow that they have from the the revenue from that gas that you out there are consuming for your central heating right now, and which we can't switch off tomorrow. We've got to continue providing that for some time. We've got to run it down as quickly as possible, and we've got to take the cash from the profit from that, and we've got to put it into those new technologies. And we've got to differentiate between the fossil fuel companies which are doing that and those which are simply a drag anchor trying to uh, uh, prevent any progress at all. Which are the ones doing it at the scale and the speed that's required? Hmm? Which are the fossil fuel companies which are making that transition at the speed and scale required? I'm not going to get into I'll tell you some which aren't. Exxon. I, I can tell you the ones that aren't. I want to know the ones that are. I think there is a difference between the Europeans who to different degrees have shifted into a different space from the major Americans who are frankly not, or at least most of them are not. There's another whole debate there. Okay, right. So let's move on to um, something that we have heard a lot about is promises. And there's another question, another anonymous question that asks, any thoughts on sanctions for countries that fail to meet their commitment? Oh, and it is not anonymous. Sorry, Hilton Phillipson has asked this. Because, you know, it's fine people making promises, but what if they don't keep their promises, Bim? So this is the, the, the really tough thing, because ultimately you're dealing with sovereign nations and there is not a world court. There isn't the, the UN cannot play that 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 role. Um, but what I th- 
do think, and I come back to something I said earlier, is that we've got to embed these things in our trading system, in the World Trade Organization. Because if with trade, countries will economically lose out or not be able to export products to certain parts of the world because they aren't meeting certain standards, that's a very good incentive for me to, to improve my, my behavior. And for me, that's how I would use it, not in a sort of trying to punish sovereign nations, which you know isn't really uh, feasible. Any other opinions on the... Yes, I Twofold. First of all, I think we can reward nations who are doing the good thing. I think, in a sense, one of the most surprising step forwards at uh, COP26 from countries was Vietnam, rapidly growing country, committing to strong commitments on coal, strong commitments on getting to net zero by 2050. And bluntly, I think the World Bank and the IMF and the other funders should say that sort of commitment gets rewarded uh, in a greater extent than other countries that haven't made that commitment. And secondly, I completely agree with Bim about the trade issue. And the core here is what are called border carbon adjustments. Look, there is a challenge for the European steel industry, which is now committed to get to net zero. If they do that with the technologies available and the Turkish industry and the Russians doesn't do the same, all that will happen is that production moves to Turkey and Russia to no benefit to the climate at all. So the European Union is quite right to be going ahead with a border carbon adjustment. And I think we need to apply that in other ways as well. And bluntly, you know, if Australia will not make more serious commitments, and I think if I think I put Vietnam as one of the great steps forwards, you know, uh, a, uh, uh, Australia is still about 196 out of 196 in terms of the degree of responsibility. Maybe we should have a very different attitude to our uh, trade bill with uh, uh, Australia than is in the latest trade agreement that the UK has done. Let's move on again. We are jumping about between the topics here. Going back to who we listen to, this is a question from Jess specifically for Clover. Uh, and Jess asks, do you think that politicians only invite activists to things like COP to appease them? Or do you think they actually listen to them? Do, do you, are you just somebody else's tool, I guess, is what she was asking by being present? And there is an interesting new term being thrown around called youth washing, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I tend to agree with. I mean, I've experienced this many times firsthand. For one, you know, being the kind of token young person in a room. But again, it, it comes back to what is the actual platform that we are facilitating and, and enabling. And I think we saw more youth representation by way of the speeches that were delivered at COP and, and the speeches that went, you know, really viral and that resonated with people because I think young people tend to have an ability to speak from a place of morals and ethics. And some would say that that's naively optimistic, but I think emotion is what we need more than ever before in these stitched up spaces. But if you actually look at how young people are integrated into decision-making spaces, they're relatively non-existent. I think we see that in companies, we largely see it in policy as well. And of course you see it in negotiation processes too. So I don't even know if it's a matter of like appeasing. <laughs> I think young people have largely kind of force their way into those different spaces, but we're not being engaged in the kind of ways that are possible. And, you know, a lot of young people don't want to get involved, you know, at the governance level, for example, but there are spaces that we have a lot to contribute and those doors are not currently being opened. 
Thank you. And I'd like to add um, another question that comes off the back of that, which is that one of the things I see, and this is my question to all of you, I guess, one of the things that young people say to me is uh, they say, well, we're angry. We want to be angry. We want to get angry at people. And it feels to me like there's a lot of hard things to be done. Like, you know, so we need to sort things out and build things, organize things, change systems, all of this stuff. There's this kind of, how do we balance the work of letting people, especially younger people who were not around when the problem, you know, the bulk of the problem was being generated. How do we balance what is perhaps a reasonable want to express anger at the situation they're in against, you know, we've got a job to do. Go on, Adair. It's a very good question. And look, I, uh, you know, and it is also, it's not just youth. It's what is the relative role of, you know, very strong radical statements like Extinction Rebellion and people demanding, you know, immediate really radical action versus, you know, the stuff that I do, which is deep in the detail of how are we going to build green hydrogen? How are we going to reduce the cost? How rapidly can we turn over uh, the steel industry uh, to zero carbon with what technologies, with what investments at what pace. I think what I would encourage people to say is there is a value in in demonstrations, in making clear that there is anger, but you then have to engage in the details. If it is simply anger and it doesn't then engage in the details of, okay, what are we going to do? How many wind turbines are we going to put in the North Sea? What policies are required to do that? What are the implications for the cost of electricity? And if temporarily that is higher, is there or is there not going to be subsidies? Who's going to pay? If you don't get into the details of that, the anger isn't as powerful as it should be. And I think there has to be some bridge between people's expression of concern and anger, but then actually getting into the details of the specific policies by which we can not completely fix this at this stage, but significantly reduce its harmful effects. I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, I, I think that people have got an extremely good reason to be angry, young people in particular, whose futures are being trashed by the fact that my generation and the generation above me haven't acted anywhere like fast enough. I think that anger can be very powerful when it's channeled. And I've, I've seen what happened when young people have come into parliament and been, I, I hosted a meeting where they were meeting with party leaders and it was incredibly powerful because as, as Clover, I think, said earlier, there is a kind of a moral authority of young people People looking policymakers in the face and say, you know, this is my future that you are basically screwing up. I don't think it should be a requirement on 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 all of those young people, the school strikes, let's say, to know how many wind turbines it's going to take in the North Sea to be able to make the transition. I think all they need to know is that change is politically possible if there's enough noise that makes that change happen. And I think that the the role of XR and of the school climate strikes have been really important. They have given the politicians a bit of much needed spine to believe that they can actually move in a more ambitious direction without being punished for it. And I think the the um, citizens' assemblies have, have played a similar role. It's really interesting that when you take those 
citizens' assemblies on climate without exception, I think, even if you've got, as you will have, a cross-section that includes people for whom climate is not a priority and, and they haven't much thought about it, when they're given the objective evidence and the information, all of them come up with far more ambitious policies than, than any government has come up with. So it feels to me that we all have our different roles. You know, there is a role for people like Adair to know how many wind turbines it's going to take. And there's certainly a role for the school climate strikers to be to be very angry outside. And it feels to me, if we know our roles... School, I just want those school strikers to subsequently move into roles where they're pushing for detailed action. I just want them to think about, you know, a career which starts with one thing but ends up in the trenches of the details as well, because we need lots of radicals in that, in that detailed work as well. I think we, we need a lot more imagination. And I think the response to the COVID pandemic does teach us something, which is that things that we might have thought were impossible can suddenly become very possible almost overnight when there is a shared understanding of 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 urgency and you know we had a government that that wrote off NHS debt overnight. 13 billion of NHS debt was written off overnight. The homeless were housed for a small time at least. You know, people's health and well-being was put above profit and growth for a short while at least. Things happened that were quite extraordinary. And if they happen before, they can happen again. We found the money. We go back to Mia Motley and her trillions that she thinks that could be galvanised for this for this effort. I think Bim's very keen to come in here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's really important is that anger needs to provide answers, right? You've got to link those two things. And I agree with Adair on that. But the last thing I'd say is that people need to engage in democratic countries with the democratic process. It is no good people complaining and whining and complaining and shouting and being angry and then refusing to engage in the formal democratic process. Make that um, process fair well, then, Bim. Look, well, I'm not getting into facing reform. Well, what it's, it's massive. Is, it's what, central what to your say, argument. Caroline, Caroline, what I will say is it's really, really, it's just not useful to simply be angry without investing the time and effort to also understand the policymakers and people in parliament like you and me and uh, uh, people outside in, 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 in companies or various parts of government, the actual decisions, unless you are going to want to be part of the decision-taking and decision-making, you will limit the potential for where you want to go. And I just say that as a plea to young people, and I still vaguely qualify as young at the age of 35. Maybe I don't. But I just think it's really, really important. OK, we, have, we are almost out of time. I want to give the last word to Clover on this very quickly, if you would, on this issue of anger versus getting stuck into the detail. Briefly, what's your, what's your final message on that? One of the most powerful things any one of us can do for climate action is to lean into the difficult emotions. We are living in a culture that switches us off to this crisis, right? We've known that for decades as a culture, we have been sleepwalking toward a cliff of climate collapse, even as the scientists have been trying to raise the alarm. And that anger, anxiety, despair, that is the internal alarm bell that wakes you up to this crisis and says, hey, actually, there's something fundamentally wrong with the way that we're living. And those feelings, I believe, and through our research at Force of Nature have shown are an imperative, important prerequisite and precursor to action. So rather than switching off and talking about the climate crisis 
purely as an opportunity, as an invitation, we need to respond to the fact that, you know, we're living in a culture that commodifies nature, that values a tree more when it's dead than alive. Um, most of us who live in a bubble of climate privilege are benefiting from the systematic sacrifice of frontline communities, benefiting from a centuries-long system of oppression and the exploitation of many people around the world. And until we truly open our eyes and wake up to that crisis and how we all to some degree have been implicit and contributed to it. I do not believe that we will solve this crisis with the pace and scale required. So I wouldn't laugh the anger out of the room. I think it's the best bet that we actually have for responding to this as the emergency that it is. Okay, right. We are going to have to finish there just as it was all getting very, very interesting. So I would like to thank our four fabulous and passionate and well-informed speakers, Caroline Lucas, Bim Afalami, Clover Hogan, and Adair Turner. Thank you very much to everyone who contributed a question, even if we didn't get to your questions. Thank you to the rest of the audience for being there. Um, that matters as well. Uh, and thank you to Intelligence Squared for organizing this event. I'm Helen Chersky, and I hope to be along for the, one of the next Intelligence Squared debates. Thank you all very much, and good night. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. 